0: We are continuing our series called Christmas List as we approach the Christmas season, Christmas Day. And I know that so many of you guys have a list of things that has to be done before December 25th and a list of things that you want to do before December 25th. And one of them that is commonly on most of your lists is we are going to go and visit family. And some of you guys are like, Yay, family time. (laughs) And some of you guys are like, yeah, I get to be with my siblings. I get to be with them. And I understand that it's different. And I believe today's message is going to be encouraging to you wherever you are on that spectrum of emotion when it comes to visiting family. And I know that the way that you feel about visiting family, it changes through generations because you can probably remember back to when you were a kid and you found out you're going to grandma's house or something like that. And one of your first questions was, will there be any other kids there? And that was the mentality, like, okay, if I have to go, will there at least be any other kids there? And then the big question when you're a teenager is, when can we go home? And that's usually the mentality at family get- get-togethers, when can we get back to my room in-, in-, in normalcy? In the 20s, it usually feels a little bit of something like, I can go, but I can only stay for a little while because I'm super important and I have to get back to my important things as a 20-year-old. I think about in your 30s around there, it starts to be a feeling of, I'm really glad we got to do this. And in your 40s, you have enough life experience around you, I think, that you kind of say, I wouldn't do anything, I wouldn't want to be doing anything other than this, getting to be with these people, because you begin to understand the brevity, the shortness of life, and that these people that you grew up with, whether it's been troubled, whether it's been great, you begin to recognize, I don't get much time with them, and you start to really soak it in. And today we're going to look at a little bit of the Christmas story, and we're going to look at some ways that we can maybe value our family time, value our families a little bit better through what happened with Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. But before we get to that, and I want to give you a little insight into my world about what's about to happen behind the scenes here, Um, because normally my, my messages, I have four pages of notes. And that, that well covers 30 minutes if I'm on good behavior, if I stay within my four pages of notes. As I was writing this message, just setting up the message was already two full pages of notes. So my intro is going to be about two, you know, half the time. And then the, the three sweet points that you're used to are going to be the second half. So person doing the notes, don't be scared. You don't have to do too much until we get to the later half of this message. But the thing is, if you have a better grasp on culturally what it was like in that day and age, it's going to change some of the way that you understand the experience that Mary and Joseph had as they were going back to Bethlehem. Because there's certain things that just in in our culture, like when an unexpected guest shows up at your door today, our reaction is something like, what are you doing here? Like, I, I mean, maybe I'm not... You guys are being in church mode today, I don't know. You act like you like unexpected people knocking on your door, but I know who you really are behind those church clothes. When someone shows up and they did not text ahead, and they did not warn you, and you did not have time to get the house ready, your anger gets going a little bit, and you're like, how are you? Like, uh, you try to be like, you're glad that they're there, but I know how it is. But in this day, it was actually seen as a gift from God Like it was seen as a divine gift when unexpected people showed up and you got to host them. And especially in this time, a lot of that was rooted out of the Hebrew people's understanding of Genesis 18. And it was this interaction where Abraham saw some, Some Three men outside of his tent and he invited them in and he said, take off your shoes and wash your feet and let's get food ready and let's kill the fattened calf and let's feed you and let's take great care of you. And while they were there, it was actually angels, it wasn't men, and they pronounced this incredible blessing to Abraham of this time next year, you will have a son. And it was an incredible blessing that Abraham received because he welcomed people in and it built this worldview around the Hebrew people that when there is a stranger coming through and you have the opportunity to show hospitality, if you miss that opportunity, you could miss out on a blessing. And this was just generally the way that they felt. And this was taught throughout the Old Testament. It was also taught in Romans 12, 13. The church was told to practice hospitality is the short end of that verse where it says practice hospitality. And every Greek word is like a small word picture. And the word hospitality very simply means to, to love a stranger, to be love to a stranger, to be loved to someone who hasn't earned it, to be loved to someone who doesn't deserve it yet, hospitality to be loved to someone else. And so first of all, to begin to build the the world view that Mary and Joseph would have had when they set out on this trip to Bethlehem, the first thing they would have expected that any Hebrew family that saw them needing a place to stay would have reacted with this hospitality of it's a gift from God we get to host somebody. The, the, The next thing is that the welcome would have been intense. Now, we know what the welcome would be like at our house if someone knocked without warning us first. But the welcome there, it would be intense. I mean, I mean like I was going to come and just like give you a big kiss on each side of your, your cheek, Myron, to demonstrate what a good Eastern welcome would have been at this time. But I was sick this week, so I'm going to spare you from that. But, but that's what it would have been. It would have been a big bearded man grabbing a hold of you, kissing you on both cheeks, bringing you in, being excited, being energetic. And this was the type of welcome that they would have expected in this time. And you see this reflected in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. It's instructed there in Scripture. That's one that we say, okay, that was a little more cultural. We don't have to do that in every church gathering today. But that was culture was to be expected when you showed up at someone's house, that that welcome would just be intense. And in fact, they would bow low to their guest that was there. And the guest would be treated as the guest of honor. They would be treated as the Lord of the house. If you were a guest in someone's house, you would have the best seat. You would have the best of the food. The best cut from from the meat, that was on your plate. The, The most refills, that was you. The person who everyone was making sure you had everything that you needed, they were all focusing on you. And that's what it meant to be a guest in someone's house, even when you were an unexpected guest. And the next thing was the sharing of food food would just flow like water, man. Food would be everywhere. And in fact, as you'd arrive, they would start screaming, go get the calf from the yard, from the barn. Go ahead and kill it. Go and butcher it. We need to cook more food. We need to make some bread. We need to get things ready. And things would all of a sudden start buzzing around the house to make sure that this guest was well-fed. We, we don't have as many, I guess, Hebrew families around here, but some of you guys come from Italian families And it's the same way. Like, you might have just eaten a Thanksgiving meal, but if you show up to Italian mama's house, you're going to eat again, right? Like, that was the feeling to be a guest at someone's house in these biblical times. Even if they only had a little, they would put everything they had out there for you to take care of you. And this was the common practice. The next thing is that there would be almost no privacy. Like, this would be the expectation, and I understand that you would probably hate this part, but this was just common in the culture and the way the houses were, that that when you got there, the same room that you ate your meal in, if you were one of the men, that was the same room that you were going to sleep in, which I think is pretty nice. You know, eat a nice big meal and then just fall asleep right there on that couch that you ate on and not have to move at all. That sounds okay to me. Uh, The women would sleep in the next room, but you would be sleeping in the same room as your host's. And you would not be left alone. It's not like, hey, welcome to our house. Here's your private room. Go in, put your stuff in, shut the door, have some alone time, and then come talk to us when you're ready. That's not how it was. In fact, it would have been an insult if you were put into a room by yourself and you didn't get to share that space and that time with your host or with your guest. And so to to just kind of make sure we're tracking along, Mary and Joseph, culturally what was normal for them is that unexpected guests were gifts from God. The welcome would be incredibly intense. There would be plenty of food. There'd be lots of time spent with other people. And the next thing is that once you were in someone's house, it was like, even if you didn't know where you are, even if the place where you are was mostly hostile towards people like you of your race or of your religious background, once you were in their house, you were under their protection. Like when you ate a meal with someone else in their house, no one could lay a finger on you. Because it's understood right now, you're like family. And having a good grasp on this fact of like how meaningful it was to have a meal with someone, it helps you understand for the traveler what it meant when, you were, when, when the Israelites were instructed to invite the foreigner in. Like how powerful that is. When you look at Jesus talking to Zacchaeus and saying, we, I have to have a meal with you at your house today. You understand how powerful that is. You understand communion a little bit different. When in that day, to, to break bread with someone else, to have a meal with them, was saying, I will protect you, you're like family, you're safe here, it carries a deeper meaning than, than what having a meal with someone in, in our day and age looks like. Dr. Cyrus Hamlin, an American missionary in the East, he was being entertained by a governor while he was doing his mission work, and the host, the governor, he took a piece of the roast mutton, and as he handed it to the missionary, he said, do you understand what I've just done in handing this to you? He said, by that act, I have pledged to you every drop of my blood that while you're in my territory, no evil shall come to you. For, for this space of time, we are brothers. To share a meal with someone was to say, you're, you're under my protection now. This also helps better round out our understanding of Psalms 23, verse 5, when it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He's saying, when, when you, you prepare this meal for me, and I know that I am safe here, even if I'm in the presence of my enemies, because if I'm having a meal with you, God, no one can attack me because I am under my your safety. In Psalms, it also talks about the the flip side of that. In Psalm 41, verse 9, it, it, it prophetically talks about that even my close friend, someone I trusted who shared my bread, has turned against me. To have a meal with someone, it was meaningful. And if you were ever to betray someone who broke bread, who had a meal with you, it was completely dishonorable. It was unbelievable. It, it, it would get, get people, get their heart rate up, their blood pressure would rise. They, they, they ate a meal with you and they betrayed you? That's, that's impossible. That's disgraceful. Which, what that's prophetic of, and what also should be in our understanding, is for Judas to be there at the Last Supper and to take that bread from Jesus on that last night and betray him, it was unthinkable. To betray a friend is unthinkable, but even someone that you've, you've been doing your life with and eating meals with, it, it couldn't be understood by them. And then the, the other part of this that I think is well summarized in 1 Timothy 5.8, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that's a New Testament teaching that came after it, but that heartbeat was already there within the Hebrew people, that you take care of your family, that your relatives who have need, you you take care of them. When someone is unexpected and they show up, you take care of them. And this is part of our worship of God. And it would be despicable to leave someone out in need. And this is the worldview that Joseph and Mary would have had in saying, we have to go to Bethlehem. And so I I want you to have some grasp on that as we get into Luke chapter 2 right now. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to the gospel of Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 7. And I need you to have those parameters that, you know, when we get there, when we get to Bethlehem, I'm going to have relatives there because everyone's going to be there. And there's going to be this explosive welcome and there's going to be all this food. And we're going to be well taken care of. And that would have been the mindset they have of when we get to travel there. And then this is what happened happens in Luke 2, starting at verse 4. All returned to their ancestral towns. That's going to be important. Who returned to their ancestral towns? Who returned to their ancestral towns? Thank you. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was the descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. Now, in this first part, I want you to focus in on the all returned. So everyone that Joseph was related to would have been back in the hometown. And theologians, as they look at this situation, the conclusion that most of them come to is that Joseph's parents must have been deceased. For him to not end up staying wherever his parents were, they would have had to pass away because it would have been disgraceful to think of not bringing them into the home as Mary was pregnant, as they were traveling. But it I don't think it's as simple as that. Because one thing that we do know about Joseph is that he was a man of character. He's listed as being a hard worker. He was listed as being a godly man. He was compassionate when he believed that Mary had committed adultery on him, and he wanted to put her away in a respectable manner and not bring shame to her. He was a good man, and he most likely came from a good family. And his good family most likely said, Joseph, I can't believe that you got her pregnant. And Joseph said, it's from God. And they reacted to that the same way that he did. And he was like, that doesn't sound probable. And most likely what happened was these cousins, these brothers, these sisters, even his parents if they were still alive, the people that his family had worked for that he knew through his family, all of the contacts that he would have had there probably shut him out. And the compassion that they would normally show to a stranger that was common for their culture was denied to them because of what people assumed they had done. Which is actually a really good starting point because, man, aren't there so many times where you think you're certain what the story is with someone else? You think you know all about why they made the mistake. You think you know all why they're in that predicament that they're in until later you find out what really happened. It's easy to come to conclusions, uh, and I'll tell you, it, it's one of my pet peeves It happens all the time. When, when someone thinks they know something that they don't, especially to the tune of, like, when someone tells me, Paul, you're angry. I'm like, I'm not angry. Like, you can't read my mind. You might be able to predict the future because I'm angry now that you've told me that I am angry when I wasn't angry. Like, that's a good way to just get me angry, but you don't know that. Like, you don't know what I'm thinking you, when someone tells you why you did something. It's like, you don't know why I did that. You can make a guess, but don't present it to me as a fact. And, and I know that that's something that's a pet peeve of mine that I get frustrated at, but I also know that I can jump to similar conclusions when I'm like, well, you know what, you, you messed your, yourself up, you made your own bed, you get to sleep in it now. I can jump to conclusions and say, well, this is why your life is that way, because of your stupid decisions, and you need to fix it, but I don't know all of the issues that led them there that made that decision-making make sense to them. And in the same way that Joseph judged Mary, in the same way that Joseph's family probably judged them, I think that we often look in other people's circumstances and we react with judgment when we should react with grace. And for everyone who was in Bethlehem, but no one did anything for them, there's a story that, the city that there was going to be the birthplace of the Messiah, the city that was the city of David, the city where Joseph had his heritage, none of them would open a door for Joseph and Mary. The best that the city did for them was a manger. And I am not convinced that I would have done much better if I was there. And I probably can't be convinced that you would do much better if you were there. And so my challenge that as we get into this part of the message and this part of the Christmas story is I want to give you permission to give someone else grace that you don't think that they deserve. When you think you know enough of their story to condemn them for what they've done, go ahead and say, you know what? God has more than enough reason to condemn me for what I've done, but he continues to give me grace after grace, and so to them, I will just give grace upon grace that they do not deserve. I will give them compassion that they do not deserve because that's how God has treated me. And if someone had acted that way towards Joseph and Mary, they would have been part of the biblical narrative forever. They would have been the person who gave up their bed for the Savior. But it was door after door after door that was shut. And that's what happened in Bethlehem. And as we think about, you know, we're, we're, we're wanting to just get a little bit better at how we value our families today and our family time. And as you think about Christmas celebrations, I know some of, many of you guys go to opening presents and some of you guys go to memories of family conflicts at Christmas. Uh, some of you guys, probably your memory can jump to things of someone said something to me and it was so rude and nobody corrected it and nobody said anything about it and I felt so angry and I felt so alone and no one did anything. In the same way that no one did anything for Joseph and Mary, I've had so many family issues and family problems would come up and no one would be on my side and I, I'm so angry about it and I carry the bitterness and I, I, wanna, I wanna just talk into that That situation that has occurred and the situations are about to occur as you get your family back together, where you feel like no one has been on my side, no one has noticed me, no one has cared for me, I want to speak into that situation a little bit because I believe that there's an opportunity for the gospel to be at work there. Uh, One of the the first things that my wife had to say about me in our romance story was that she could never date me. Um, one of the first things that I noticed about her was that when we, would, we were helping at a middle school ministry at the time, and one of the first things that I noticed about her was she had this, this process when she would come into the room, and, and I, I would just see it kind of like work out on her face. And she'd come in, and she'd just scan around the room and look around, and she'd find the, the one kid who was off by themselves and she was like a heat-seeking missile. She was like, you are not going to be alone. And she would go, and she would get the kid laughing and bring them over to the group and, like, keep them connected, and it was just, I was like, that is a cool thing about Tia. Like, she, she just, she does that. She doesn't just look to say, okay, where am I going to be? She's like, who, who's alone, and how can I get to them? And I think that I'm more like the person who's, and maybe that's why we're a couple, because I'm like, I'm just going to stand over here by myself. And Tia's like, you're not allowed to be by yourself. And maybe that's what happened. But I know that my normal thing is I'm just going to wait for other people. But I want to tell you, we're not called to just sit back and wait. We're called to be people who go. We're called called to be people who take the first step. We're called to be people who start the reconciliation process. We're not just called to be people who are part of the reconciliation process. And so especially as I talk about family get-togethers, some of you guys are like, yeah, our family is going to get together, but I'm going to make sure that I stay away from person X. And until they decide to start the reconciliation process, I'm just staying silent because it's not my job to start it. I want to tell you, you're called to start it. You're called to go. You're called to bring healing where there is brokenness. You're called to be the one person who will step up. And Christmas time is probably the the best time to, to start about reconciliation because everything that's decorated around your house speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that we're giving Christmas presents are about this gift that we received from God that we do not deserve. And as you get together for Christmas this year, and this is where we're dialing in, if we're visiting family, we need to be valuing family. And you say, well, I have a lot of buts about this. Like, but it's their fault, but they're older, but they're the parent, but they should be the responsible one. Take all of your stinky butts and get them out of the way of what the gospel wants to do in your household. Move yourself and your pride out of the way because God is all about reconciliation. Christmas is all about reconciliation. And I'm not discounting the pain that has happened. I'm just putting a light on the fact that you are supposed to be a person who carries reconciliation everywhere you go. The promise that Jesus' presence will be with you, that people quote all the time, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I'll be there. That whole teaching is in the context of reconciliation and how to be reconciled to each other. So Jesus' promise to you is when you step up to begin the reconciliation process, I'm gonna be there with you. This is where his heart is at. I mean, it's so important that it's supposed to interrupt worship. We're told if we're getting ready to bring our gift to the temple and you think of a brother that you have something against, go and settle that problem first and then bring your worship. That's how important reconciliation is to God. And so, you know, everyone might be at your Christmas party, but no one did anything to fix the issues that were going on. You get it started. God is tapping on your shoulder today. In Bethlehem, anyone could have done something. Anyone could have changed the story. In your story, it's you. You're the anyone who could do something. You're the person who could start the conversation. Like, well, I don't even think I like them anymore. You're not called to just like them. You're called to love them. In fact, Scripture takes it deeper than that. It says you're called to love each other deeply is what Scripture tells the church to do. So we have to be the ones who get it started. And this is an encouragement for you as you think, It's like, but we have so much to fix. Just like a seed, the gospel seed is good. You begin to plant those seeds with compassion. You begin to plant those seeds with reconciliation. And the gospel is going to grow into forgiveness. The gospel is going to grow into forgiveness as it works through you as it works through your difficult history. And it's important to go ahead and get on heaven's page because those things that have happened in the past, they will be forgiven in heaven. You may as well figure out how to forgive them right now. Line yourself up with the kingdom of God. And this is just how we we, we get started by getting the conversation started. The bottom line for today and for this message is very simple. I I know that you're going to visit families, but I'm questioning whether in how we've been visiting our families, we've been valuing our families. Band, if you guys will make your way up, I'm going to begin to close this up in the next couple minutes here. I question whether we value them. I wonder if anyone else like me have felt like so many family gatherings over these last few years have been, let's get everyone under the same roof but let's all stare at our phones and our TV screens in isolation and not actually interact with each other. And the older I get and the more that I've seen pieces of my family finish their life and finish their time on earth, the more I've recognized how powerful the words are that hang on in your heart and your mind, when you dial back and you remember that parent saying, I love you. When you remember that friend saying how much they matter to you. The memory of those hugs, the memory of those laughs, they mean something different when you can't have them anymore. And when we're young, we take for granted how important each of these gatherings are. And I want to impress upon you There may even be people in your life that you're like, I don't even know if I want to invite them to Christmas. I don't know if I want to invite that brother. Because of what they've done, because of how they've been, I think we just might be better served to disclude them. And I want to encourage you to seek after God and say, is this the time for reconciliation? Is this the time for forgiveness? Is this the time for mercy? Visiting our loved ones, uh, James 4.14 is just such an echo uh, of our heartbeat and our understanding of why do you, do you, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our time is brief. And so when we have these opportunities together, I, I, wanna, I wanna challenge you to just be the catalyst for change of how you value your time together put the devices down, pause the football game, interact with each other. Bring up the happy old stories. I, I think my wife's family is great at this. They've told some of, the, some of their favorite stories so many times. I start retelling them as if I was there. I'm like, yeah, I remember when, you know, it was summertime and you guys made Kool-Aid and you drank the whole pitcher and so you didn't even make yourself lunch and you went outside and you drew a family portrait on the side of your da- dad's minivan with a rock and he wasn't too happy about it. Like the stories have been told so many times and I've heard the laughter so many times. Like it's almost like it's part of my story now. Like, they they do well at that. But your family, I want to tell you, your time is short. Make the most of it. And there's friends and there's people who need the care and affection and the affirmation that they're an important part of your life and they need to hear it from you. And it brings honor to God because God says, however you treat even the least amongst you, is how you treat me. And so I I like to make things as practical as possible. So we're going to do a little exercise and you're going to do just fine at it. It's not going to make you physically exert yourself too much. Um, I want you to get your phone out, mentally prepare yourself to ignore all other notifications as you do this. If you have a phone, go ahead and get it out right now. All right. You're going to unlock it and open up your text messages and open a new message that isn't to anybody yet. And I know this is absolutely your first time ever opening your text message app in church while Paul is speaking. You've never done that before. People smiling at your lap with your face glowing. I know what you're doing. And I want you to think, is there someone who is just incredibly important to me that I haven't told lately? Is there someone that I care about? A friend from college, a friend from years ago, a family member that is like, I just love them, but I just, I don't tell them enough. And if there's a person who comes to mind, put their name in that two box. And men, I know you're going to need some help, so I'm going to coach you on this. It's okay, people's fo- phones are going to chirp. I did it first service too, don't, don't worry about it. Um, you may not know what to say, so I'm going to give you some cues to get you started. If, it, if this is you, you can use it. You are so important to me can just be that easy. Or you could go with a, we need to get together more. Very easy, not too emotional. It's a good starting point for a man. Or you could say, I'm so thankful for you. Or I hope you know how much you matter to me. And beginning to communicate in a very simple way. Just, you are important to me. You don't know how it's going to land on their day, how important this might be for them. But I also believe that it's important because it honors God. We're told to love each other deeply, to value each other. And when the church begins to get healthy emotionally, it affects all areas of ministry. So for that person... Type that simple message. If you want to go further, you can later. You can't text for too long in a church. You're running out of time for it. hit send. Maybe they'll be surprised or maybe... They know that you just, you hit them like that every couple of months, every two or three times a year. But I want to impress upon you. I want to begin to put the highlight. I, as you think about the get together with your family, I want you to begin to plan. How can we do more than look at screens under the same roof? How can we rehearse the stories? How can we talk about God's faithfulness? What game can we play together? How can I communicate to them that I love them and I'm thankful for them? And I believe as you do that, God strengthens your family. God gives you peace in your heart. And we can live through this life without the fear of regret from words that should have been said, but weren't. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the people that we have, whether they are family by blood or just family by these years that we've spent together. And I pray that you would help us to love each other deeply. I pray that when we think that we've seen an offense that would say we we should shut them out, that you would just give us the clarity to give grace. And we are thankful for this Savior that was sent, that was born of the most humble circumstances, to give us forgiveness and new life. And we celebrate him this Christmas through our actions, through the way that we treat other people, through the way that we treat our family. In Jesus' name.